Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we look at Yuknum the Great, King of Kalakmul. Yuknum led the powerful Maya kingdom ruled by the Snake Dynasty. He installed vassal kings in neighboring cities and succeeded in dividing the royal line of his main rival, the city of Tikal. He eventually sacked Tikal itself and continued to grow the power and influence of his city in what many historians consider the Golden Age for the Snake Kingdom. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 6, Yuknum the Great, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Yuknum the Great was born in 600 AD, the son of Scroll Serpent and Lady Scroll in Hand. Scroll Serpent was the Ahau of the Kingdom of the Snake, located in the Paten Basin in the southern portion of the Yucatan Peninsula in today's Guatemala and Mexico. To their south, the Wari and Tiwanaka culture were on the rise in Peru. To the north, in what is now the American Southwest, the Hoacam and the ancestral Pueblo cultures are beginning to take shape. Across the Atlantic, England was divided with various kingdoms vying for power. Northumbria was reunited under Oswald in the 630s, while Penda ruled Mercia beginning around the same time. On the continent, Dagobert died in 639 and is generally considered the last Merovingian king to hold real royal authority over the Franks. The Visigoths ruled over the Iberian Peninsula and succeeded in kicking out the Byzantine Empire in 624, about three-quarters of a century after the general Belisarius re-established a Roman presence there. Most of northern Italy was ruled by the Lombards, while to their north, various smaller Germanic kingdoms of Thuringians, Saxons, Frisians, Jutes, and the like ruled up to the North Sea. Further east, Samo ruled over a West Slavic kingdom centered on Moravia, to his south and east, the Avar Khaganate held the Pannonian Basin east to the Black Sea. And to their south, the Byzantine Empire ruled over the Balkans and Anatolia, as well as North Africa, Egypt, and the Levant. They concluded a war in 628 with their eastern neighbors, the Sasanians, who ruled from the borders of the Roman Empire east across Mesopotamia, the Iranian Plateau, Khorasan, into the Hindu Kush Mountains. Unfortunately for these empires, Another power was on the rise in their neighborhood. By about 630, most of the Arabian Peninsula was united under Muhammad. He died in 632 and was succeeded by the first caliph, Abu Bakr. The Arabs were starting to invade Sassanid territory by the 630s and had taken Egypt from the Roman Empire by the middle of the 640s. To the north, the western Gokturk Cognate ruled the steppe from the Caspian east to the Altai Mountains. The Tang Dynasty was established in China in 618 and would subjugate much of the Turkish nomads on the steppe by the middle of the century. Songsten Gampo established the Tibetan Empire around the same time as the Tang Dynasty was born. To the south of them, Harsha ruled over a united northern India, while the Chalukyas were in control of much of the south. Moving east across the Pacific, 
Mesoamerica was in the middle of what is now known as the Classic Maya period. The great city of Teotihuacan, near today's Mexico City, and not a Maya city, had collapsed about a century earlier. Several Maya cities held significant power over large, if somewhat amorphous, kingdoms. The Maya were, and remain today, in the same general region they have been for well over two millennia, what we would now call eastern Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, and western Honduras and El Salvador. The Maya are a culture and a people that has persisted, but has also unsurprisingly evolved and changed over time. Their origins date back at least 2,500 years. Before around 250 AD, give or take, the civilization is referred to as pre-classic Maya. They took cues from the Olmec people who thrived to their northwest, along the southern coast of the Gulf of Mexico, in the region of eastern Veracruz and Tabasco today. The Olmec are sometimes called the mother culture of Mesoamerica, and flourishing between 1500 and 400 BC, they are the earliest major civilization of the region. It's not entirely clear if the Maya developed contemporaneous to the Olmec or were sort of culturally descended from them, but there was certainly Olmec influence in the southern Maya region along the Pacific coast. The pre-classical Maya were building major cities before the Olmec were gone. A large site, El Mirador, which has pyramids and other monumental buildings, was perhaps the most important Maya city in 300 BC. El Mirador was in the central region, the southern part of the Maya lowlands. This area is north of the mountains along the Pacific coast, and to its north is the aptly named northern region. And while this does have some well-preserved sites, the central area is where the most powerful cities of the classical Maya period ruled. A decline in population set in at some point in the 2nd century AD. But by the year 250 AD, again give or take, growth returned. Some pre-classic sites were abandoned, but others remained populated and still others grew. Influence pushed in from the west, this time not from the Olmec, but from further west, that city of Teotihuacan. Less than 30 miles outside of what is today Mexico City, Teotihuacan was massive. The huge Pyramid of the Sun was built there around 200 AD, and it is believed the city reached a population of a minimum of 125,000 people in the centuries that followed, making it one of the ten largest cities in the world, behind places like Constantinople, Alexandria, Tessaphon, and Chang'an. Their influence was felt throughout the region and into the Maya world, although we aren't clear on the Teotihuacan state itself. Despite the neighboring civilization showing plenty of examples of kingship and authoritarian government at the same time, no evidence of this has been found in the city. This has led to all kinds of speculation onto just what kind of government was centered on the largest urban site in Mesoamerica until the Aztecs a thousand years later, but we just don't know. Moving back east to the Maya region, One of the hallmarks of the transition from the pre-classical era to the classical was actually the authoritarian rule part. More precisely, it was the kings of the Maya cities becoming more than just kings to their people. According to Simon Martin and Nikolai Grube in their book, Chronicle of the Maya Kings and Queens, quote, the classical Maya developed a complex and highly refined royal culture. 
rulers combined supreme political authority with a quasi-divine status that made them indispensable mediators between the mortal and supernatural realms, unquote. Now, this wasn't necessarily brand new or a clear delineation that just started occurring in about 250 AD, but it was part of the transition. Additionally, there was significantly more emphasis on the individual kings, the people themselves. Ahau was the Mayan term for the king or lord. Kuhulahau meant holy lord or king, which is how they often styled themselves in this period. We know this, of course, because of the massive amount of Mayan writing that has been found. The Maya system of hieroglyphics was refined in the pre-classical era and was predominantly used in the classical Maya language, the predecessor of today's Cha'olan languages still spoken in the region. It became the standard language for hieroglyphics, so even if it wasn't a city's primary language, such as up in the north, it was still usually the language of writing. Very different in appearance to the more familiar Egyptian hieroglyphics, there are some similarities. Maya writing is a combination of characters that represent entire words and characters that represent syllables. So, a single word could be written multiple ways, its own logogram, a combination of logograms, or a combination of syllables. It is complex, and there are still questions that remain unanswered. But a majority of the script has been deciphered. The writing has given us an impressive, if still tantalizingly limited, set of stories to help us unearth the history of the Maya. Much of it has been preserved on stelae in the various city-states, and often we learn of a king's activity through the stelae of one of his vassals. The other piece that is essential to our understanding is the famous Maya calendar. The Maya had a base 20 numbering system, and they had an extremely sophisticated way of keeping track of time. The Katun, about 20 years long, was only one of their units of time measurement, but it comes into play as rulers fortunate enough to do so would celebrate if they remained in power for that long. The calendar itself was written with a place for each of the units, and most of the classic Maya dates occurred in Baktun 9, Baktun being an approximately 400-year unit. The earliest known use of this calendar was in the 1st century B.C., and working backwards, the first date on the calendar would be 3114 BC. Regardless of the differences in base of the number system and the multiple units that we can loosely correspond to our own centuries, decades, years, months, and days, the Maya calendar was extremely accurate. Scholars can now interpret Maya dates to within a day or two of our standard modern calendar. And because the calendar was so important to the Maya, These dates are on everything. So, when we say Yuknum the Great was born in the year 600, it's because we know he was born within a day or two of the 11th of September in the year 600, and he became king on or about the 1st of May in the year 636. It's the kind of accuracy we just don't tend to get in the ancient, classical, or even sometimes medieval world in Eurasia. Speaking of Eurasia, The Maya never had an empire in the European or Asian sense, and they didn't tend to have autocratic rulers removing kings and ruling territory themselves, or even directly through subordinates. But that's not to say comparisons to the Eastern Hemisphere are irrelevant. There are a few examples that help give a picture of what Maya politics look like. 
Martin and Grubb hit on the lack of true political unity, writing, quote, classical Greece or Renaissance Italy are worthy comparisons, where a sophisticated and widely shared culture flourished amid perpetual division and conflict, unquote. While David Friedel writes in the Cambridge World Prehistory that it was, quote, more comparable to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia in the Old World than to other pre-Columbian New World civilizations, unquote. The comparison with Greece is helpful because of the strong city-states that hold sway over other regions. And Mesopotamia, and I mean ancient, ancient Mesopotamia, like Sumerian times, also is helpful. There, places like Ur or Uruk dominated over their neighbors at times, and then a few decades later, a new city might be ascendant. For the Maya, the city-states were really the main polity. They were kingdoms, yes, but they didn't think of holding territory the way we might. The powerful kings were more like over-kings, as Martin and Grubb put it. There were client-patron relationships between cities. Often we know this not because of boasts of conquest, but rather because one king wrote down who his over-king was. There is a certain medieval, feudal Europe feel to these relationships, if you want to add yet another analogous but not quite right Eastern Hemisphere comparison. Martin and Grubb, in their article, Maya Superstates, explain the political structure as, well, superstates. They note that while many kingdoms existed in the area, and every one of them was led by a king, it is clear that some cities were significantly larger, with much more monumental architecture, than others. In other words, not all kings were created equal. Only recently it has been deciphered that the less powerful kings would usually refer to the king who installed them, their overking. The example they cite is another familiar kingdom from a few centuries in the future, but not that far away geographically. Quote, the Aztec Empire was a loose confederation of subjugated kingdoms. Defeated local lords were usually restored to their offices and allowed to rule their states without further hindrance, unquote. This led to an empire that had many loosely tied vassal kings who had to provide tribute and probably military aid when needed, and they suspect that the Maya were organized similarly, with a few major kingdoms that ruled over their smaller neighbors. One of these kingdoms was known as Khan, or Khanul, the kingdom of the snake. Eventually, the seat of this dynasty's power was the city of Kalakmul, but its origins were elsewhere. The Snake Kingdom may have started in El Mirador, that powerful city of the pre-classical age. Whether or not they were the actual ruling dynasty in what was likely the most powerful Maya city of the late centuries BC, or they just traced their lineage to those kings and invented a relationship, we don't know. What's more clear is that the Snake Kingdom established or re-established itself in the city of Zibanche, on the northern edge of the central area. Eventually, they moved their seat of power to Kalakmul, which might have been the largest Maya city of the era. Inscriptions made by the Snake Kingdom vassals have helped solidify recent belief that the Maya city-states were often tightly linked. According to Francisco Estradabelli and Alexander Tokovinin, we now know this, quote, thanks to epigraphic data unearthed at numerous sites that reveal a network of client polities centered on the Kalanul dynasty, based at Zibanche and Kalakmul, unquote. Prior to the evidence of snake kings in Kalakmul, they seem to have ruled in Zibanche in the 5th or 6th century AD. 
by the middle of the 6th century, they had grown in power to the point that the king Ka'altaun Hicks, bound stone jaguar, was asserting influence over neighboring cities. As the Snake Kingdom grew in power, it came into conflict with another city of over kings, Tikal. Tikal, too, has an elusive and unique history, entirely different than Kalakmul. Tikal, another massive site that was home to more than 50,000 people at its peak, survived the collapse of the pre-classical era. Despite its success, and the fact we know of several seemingly strong kings in the 4th century, it was conquered, not by another Maya city, but rather by a warlord from Mexico, that is to say from the west, from Teotihuacan. In 378, the warlord Sayaj Ka'ak, fireborn, marched into Tikal and took it over. It's difficult for us to know about this conquest and whether it culminated in a massive battle, but he seems to have brought warriors with him from Mexico, and the king of Tikal died that same day. Shiyaj Ka'ak conquered a significant part of the Patan region, known as the Central Area, the Mayalo land south of the Yucatan and north of the Guatemalan highlands. Despite his conquest, he was never named as an Ahau. According to Martin and Grub, quote, there is evidence that Shiyaj Ka'ak presided over kingly installations at Tikal itself in 379, Bejukal around 381, and probably Rio Azul 393, suggesting that the new order had established a firm grip over the central Patan at this time, unquote. This only adds to our lack of clarity on the situation in Teotihuacan. A large urban civilization, without any known kings, went out to conquer its neighbors, and then the general installed local rulers in the city he conquered rather than ruling it himself. It isn't exactly the way we're used to things playing out, and while influence from Teotihuacan stayed in place, the cities remained Maya. The installed kings were seemingly also Maya as well. This new regional amalgam of culture was influenced by central Mexico, but there's no evidence that it was ruled by it. Despite the conquest and the influence from Teotihuacan, or indeed perhaps because of these things, Tikal became more and more powerful over the following centuries. It became one of the preeminent cities with that western influence and likely exerted its own influence over the other cities. By the early 5th century, kings of Tikal were beginning to emphasize their Maya background while still using some iconography from Teotihuacan. Tikal continued to grow in power until the middle of the 6th century. It had experienced internal strife with dynastic struggles and began losing influence in the region. The city of Naranjo switched allegiances from Tikal to the Snake Kingdom in Kalakmul. In 556 AD, the city of Caracol shook off Tikal hegemony. A rivalry was growing, and it would soon come to a head. Over in the Snake Kingdom, their influence was growing as well. The king known as Sky Witness took the throne in 561, and was recorded installing a king in a neighboring city. Sky Witness seemed to have been the driving force in an attack on Tikal. It was recorded in Caracol, and they staked some claim as well. The Snake Kingdom had turned Caracol over to their side, and the two likely attacked together. In 562, Tikal was overrun and sacked by the Snake Kingdom and its allies. 
Scroll Serpent reigned over the Snake Kingdom from 579 to 611, but the lack of inscriptions he left at Kalakmul suggests he remained in Zabanche. He attacked Palenque, which was another rival, and its distance from his own cities are indications of the reduction of Tikal's authority as well as the increase of the Snake Kingdoms. After Scroll Serpent's death, maybe because of it, Naranjo rebelled. It took a while, but eventually the Snake Kingdom was able to bring it back into the fold, this time through conquest. By the 630s, it seemed that the Snake Kingdom had relocated their capital, if that's the right term, which it's not, to Kalakmul. In 636, Yuknum II became the new Ahau of Kalakmul and ruler of the Snake Kingdom. A son of Scroll Serpent, perhaps a younger son who waited his turn through his brother's reigns, he would become known as Yuknum the Great. Yuknum dealt with a number of rebellions and conflicts during his 50-year reign, including with Tikal, which was once again on the rise. In 648, he attacked the city of Dos Pilas in the south, which was ruled by the son of a king of Tikal. After defeating them and capturing the king, Yuknum then reinstated the king, who, for some unknown reason, then became a loyal ally to the Snake Kingdom. In 657, Yuknum attacked and crushed Tikal. He also captured their king, Nu'un Ujol Cha'ak, who was allowed to reign as a vassal to the Kingdom of the Snake. But in 672, the king of Tikal rebelled. He attacked Dos Pilas, driving away that king who was Tikal royalty but allied with the Snake Kingdom. It took about five years, and probably Yoknum's help, but in 677, the king of Dos Pilas retook his own city. It's not clear why this king sided with Kalakmul and stayed loyal, but he did. In fact, two years later, he attacked his old home of Tikal and scored a major victory. It's very likely that Yoknum was behind this attack and likely provided soldiers and other forms of assistance in the efforts to smash his rivals in Tikal. The Snake Kingdom faced other rebellions and wars, including the city of Naranjo, which attacked Karakal in 680. While there is no record of what happened there, within a couple years, the Naranjo dynasty was gone, replaced by allies of Kalakmul, suggesting Yoknum's part in the resolution. As was typical in Maya Stelian art, we don't have something from Kalakmul boasting of the reach of the Snake Kingdom. But also typical, what we do have is a number of other kings who recorded their vassalage to their overlord, Yuknum. His network included cities in the west such as El Peru and La Corona. He installed kings in the south at Cancun. He controlled, in one way or another, although certainly not directly in most cases, a broad swath of land and a massive population. While we had thought for a long time that the classical Maya were a large group, the density of the jungle always held back the population estimates. But after a 2018 study of the region using LIDAR, according to an article in The Independent, quote, the discovery suggests a figure of 20 million may be more accurate. This would mean there was around half the entire population of Europe at the time living in an area around the size of Italy, unquote. Yuknum the Great's reign lasted 50 years, and it was a golden age for Kalakmul and the Snake Kingdom. The city itself was massive, over 11 square miles. Kalakmul's largest monumental building, called Structure 2 today, existed for centuries before his time. It is one of the largest pyramids ever built by the Maya, at nearly 150 feet tall. 
During the Classic period, additional rooms and buildings were built on top of the pyramid, pushing it outward. Eventually, the structure included a palace with kitchens and even a sauna. We know of at least 18 stele that Yuknum wrote, or had written for him really, during his reign. He certainly had a significant number of building projects as well, and probably helped add to the temple complex that is structure too. He was just about 86 years old when he died in the year 686, and was probably out of the business of governing for a few years before that. His son and successor, Yuknum Yich-Akak, or Jaguar Claw of Fire, was likely heavily involved in the administration. There is some evidence that the father was unable to rule effectively in the few years prior to his death. Perhaps his health began failing him. Eventually, in 695, Kalakmul was defeated by Tikal in a major battle. It isn't clear what happened to Jaguar Claw of Fire, but he appears to have survived, even though the king of Kalakmul was captured. This may have been a vassal lord rather than the big man himself. Despite this defeat, the Snake Kingdom still held sway over many of its subjects. However, by the middle of the 8th century, it was unable to protect its allies and to call sack some of the Snake Kingdom's major vassal cities. By the beginning of the 9th century, Kalakmul basically stopped recording events, suggesting it was no longer a major kingdom or population center. Tikal, meanwhile, was revitalized after defeating Kalakmul, and it began to display some of its Mexican heritage again, although not as overtly as when the armies from Teotihuacan first arrived. Throughout the 8th century, Tikal was ascendant, creating massive building projects, and by the middle of the century, defeating several Snake Kingdom allied cities. But like Kalakmul and the rest of the Snake Kingdom, the 9th century would not prove prosperous for Tikal. According to Martin and Grub, Quote, what we do know is that the final decades of the late classic saw the highest populations ever experienced in the Maya area, and that the terminal classic, AD 800 to 909, saw a dramatic decline. Within a few centuries, the central area, a landscape where millions once thronged, lay desolate and largely deserted, unquote. It's important to remember that the Maya didn't all disappear. They're still there today. But the Patan region was nearly abandoned, and urban life declined significantly. The reasons aren't entirely clear, but deforestation, probably due to the rapid population growth, coupled with large increases in agricultural output on soil that just couldn't take it after a while, are the likely culprits. A true collapse set in, as kings couldn't provide for their people, and hegemonies broke apart. Most important overkings were gone by about 830 BC, while less powerful kings ruled smaller and smaller territories. The coastal regions in northern Yucatan, in Belize, and in the highlands of Guatemala remained population centers, although they didn't seem to have the reach and power of the classical cities in the central area, and they didn't leave many inscriptions. The Maya remained in the region, and several cities, including Chichen Itza and Mayapan, flourished in the following centuries. As for the classical period, the story is a bit fragmented, but it can be pieced together, at least somewhat. The Snake Kingdom was an early, pre-classical Maya power, perhaps the main power in El Mirador. It survived the collapse, only barely, and re-established itself in the northeast. It lay somewhat weakened, while Tikal, along with neighboring cities, was conquered by Teotihuacan. The event, known as the Entrada, changed the dynamics of the Maya lowlands, especially in the west. 
Tikal became the major power with Teotihuacan ties, although it's probably too much to say it was a part of any sort of Teotihuacan empire. It was clearly influenced by the Mexican power, though, and may have been ruled by people from there. As Tikal grew, the Snake Kingdom began to grow again itself. By the middle of the 6th century, the Snake Kingdom had developed a rivalry with Tikal. By the end of the 6th century, the Snake Kingdom was the leading power. The people and culture of the eastern Maya lowlands were represented by them, and while Zabanche and later Calakmul were the overlords, their subject cities held significant power too. There is evidence that the kings of these cities led their own attacks against the Tikal polities, a division that pitted not only east against west in the Patan Basin, it may have been viewed as the original native kingdom reasserting itself against foreign-influenced upstarts. Calakmul itself is and was a massive site, home to around 50,000 people at its peak. Nearly 7,000 structures have been identified at the site, and the central plaza itself is about three-quarters of a mile. Its largest pyramid is nearly 150 feet high, just under 50 meters. Yuknum the Great was the leader of this kingdom during its golden age. Under his rule, Kalakmul created significant public works and thankfully crafted many stela that give us significant insights into the story of the Maya at a time where they were one of the largest cultures in the world. Next time, we'll move forward five centuries and head to Central Europe for the first episode of a three-part series. Despite my averseness to pinning episodes to a fixed point in current time, I do want to give a quick announcement about timing. Because we're coming up on the holidays, I'm going to wait until after the new year to post the next episode, so that there isn't a big break in between the three parts. After that, we'll finish up with one final standalone episode to conclude Season 9. Thanks for listening. <laughs>